0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Glad you're here. You can continue your conversations in a little bit, and we encourage you to do that. Stick around. Fellowship with folks. Um, Again, it's been a real blessing just to um, get to meet with people. I got to meet with a lot of people this week, and our staff team was finally all back together. All of us kind of were sick at different stages, so it was hard to have staff meeting. We met virtually on Zoom, and finally this week we got together to be able just to sit together and pray and encourage one another. That was fun. And uh, so glad that you guys are here. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We've been in this series the last few weeks. We're going to continue in this series through the winter, going into just after Easter until we get our summer series. Um, And the title of our series is called The Cross. Uh, The cross is the focus of the Christian life. It's what Jesus came to do. He came to pay the price that we deserve. For there to be justice, God can't just say, well, I forgive you, no big deal. That's not just. That's actually unjust. To be just, God has, has to find a way to forgive where the price is paid. And our God, the God of Christianity, is the only one that presents that kind of spiritual life, that kind of being that would give himself that the plan from the beginning was to create man, to come as 100% God, 100% man in Jesus, and to pay the price that was owed for all the injustice that had been done. All the other religions of the world tell us that we can work to outweigh our bads, right? It's a scale, and you just got to do more works. So, well, that doesn't give justice to the people that were hurt. That doesn't pay the price. If, you know, if, if I murdered your son or daughter, and I came along and said, can I clean your house for the rest of your life? We'll call it even. Like, that would be, that would be such an affront to their life that, that you, you'd be like, you think you can pay off my daughter? That you killed? That was a serious offense. Now, you could extend to me forgiveness and say there's nothing you could do to earn back what you did, but I do extend to you forgiveness because I understand that someone else has paid the price that you deserve. Now, do you understand that? That's a conversation we as believers should be having every day with people because it's the conversation that Paul has with this church in Corinth. That he's laying out for them the, the cross of Christ, his resurrection, and who he was is the difference in everything. And if you don't understand that, you're going to end up in a mess. And this first Corinthian church was in a mess. And we are in a mess practically in our world today like probably never in our recent generation. And we're in a mess in the church today. And so Paul has written this letter That's very applicable, very practical to where we are today. The question is, will we believe it? Most people take things in the book of 1 Corinthians and we try to twist it. We try to not make it sting as much. We try to pretend like, well, Paul didn't really mean it that way. And we re-explain it to fit kind of the culture. But that's exactly what Paul is writing this 1 Corinthian church to say not to do. He's like, you live in a culture that's trying to twist everything. I'm telling you, don't. I'm writing this because I love you enough to tell you the truth. I mean, he says... For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. To us that believe that there's no way we can earn a relationship with God, there's no way we can earn our identity, there's no way we can get any of that, it has to be a free gift given by the creator of the universe, the rest of the world sees that as incredibly foolish because it seems like it takes all the power out of our hands, which it does. And puts it in his. And puts it in one another, his body that works together to make that message known. And so it is a foolish message. It's a foolish message to think, so I have to die to live? Yep. You have to be willing to give your life because you believe that there's a resurrection that's going to come and there's an eternity. And so you're not trying to keep life, you're not trying to hold life, you're not trying to protect your life, you're trying to give it away so that others might find life in Christ. That's Paul's message to this first Corinthian church all the way through. Now I need to make a correction. Last week, I told you Paul wrote this letter in Rome. He did not. He wrote a lot of his letters in Rome. He wrote this letter in Ephesus. So, whenever I make a mistake, I like to correct it so you guys don't go around spreading rumors. So, I'm sure none of you even caught that last week, but I did want to correct that that misspeak that he wrote this letter. Most likely, we're not really sure, but most likely he wrote this letter on his third missionary journey when he was in Ephesus. So, let's dive in. 1 Corinthians 1, we looked at this the first week really, Paul lays out the case of our identity, that people who say they believe in the cross, that say they believe in Jesus, he says, you're a church, you're a body, you're an ecclesia, you're a gathering of people in a certain place, and God is making you sanctified, he's purifying you through a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says that all the way through this passage, Jesus Christ, our Lord, means Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, who is Yahweh. He's saying. The Old Testament God is the New Testament God. They're not separate. They're the one and the same. And he says, God has extended grace and peace to you. And that there's a heavenly family, a father and a son. Later, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, I always thank God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. He says, the reason I thank God is because what he's doing, not what you're doing. Because I can see his work, even in your mess, I can see the work. And he says, you've got to realize you've been enriched in everything, that you've given the ability to speak. You have knowledge that the world doesn't have. You don't lack anything spiritually if you'll just grab onto it, he says. And he says, God wants to strengthen you, and you will be blameless before him because of what Jesus has done. And he is faithful, and you are called into fellowship with one another and with his son. He lays all this out because, remember, Paul is saying, I want you to be sure you understand who you are because the things I'm getting ready to tell you in this letter are going to sting. They're going to hurt. And you have to be sure you know where your relationship with Jesus stands because if you don't, you're going to read this letter and you're going to twist it. You're going to twist it around to be like, well, now I got to do this and 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 got nope. You do that because you understand these things. And your natural response of thanksgiving is to say, thank you, God. I want all these things to be true in you, and I want the world to see that in you these things are true. So I'm going to go through the process of all of this and submit myself to it because you are God, and I'm not, and nobody else is. Then he goes on, and he talks about foolishness and understanding. He says that you need to have no divisions, We looked at that and said, but Jesus said he came to bring division. So there's a false unity and there's a real unity and we have to be careful and Paul lays that out in the gospels. The church is terrible at this today. The church is always being unified around things that aren't, we shouldn't be unified about and then we're divisive over the things we should be unified about. And and Paul's writing to a church just like ours in that situation, and he says, don't have foolishness, but if you do have foolishness, have foolishness of the cross. And then he says, make sure that you're getting the understanding that comes from God. And then last week, we looked at the fact that he talks about, do you understand who you are? Have you embraced the foolishness of a cross? Do you have real understanding? Well, then are you practicing true biblical wisdom based on all of these things? And last week, Paul lays into wisdom. He kind of continues it this week as we look. And this week, he wants to ask us a question. Based on the cross, based on who Jesus is, based on the foolishness and the understanding and the wisdom, he says, let me ask you a question. Are you a spiritual person? That's the title of the message. Are you a spiritual person? You say, well, we're all spiritual. No, no, there are two spirits in the world, God says. His And Satan's. That's it. There's two spirits. You're on one team or the other team. I know that's exclusive and offensive. I didn't write the book. God did. And he says that you are either at war with him or you are on his team. And if you're on his team and in his family, he's going to help you practice and discipline your life so that you can be a great teammate, a great family member, and invite others to be a part of the team and the family. That's how much he loves us, is to discipline and help us and strengthen us through the Holy Spirit to do that. So Paul asked this church, are you a spiritual people? You see, the Bible, and specifically the cross, and the resurrection declare something entirely different and uniquely spiritual over all other religions. Christianity is not like other religions. It is in terms of its morality, but that's because the other religions have stolen truth to convince you of a lie. Christianity has Sent the truth in Jesus Christ Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life So that we would understand what a lie is We would see the lies And so if you want Again, you've heard this analogy I've used it many times But the best way to get people to eat something disgusting Is only put 1% of it in the brownies you bake. Right? I mean, I used the reference of poop before Like if there's 1% poop You won't know they're brown And they're in the brownies So, you know, there you go That sounds disgusting, but that's what the world does. The world gives you 99% truth so it can hook you with that lie that then contaminates everything. And God says, I want to explain the lies to you so that you understand the contamination and you can come before me and say, God, I love you. Clean me, help me. And you can come before the body of Christ and say, I need help. Help me be clean before God. Help, Help me understand that God is the one that makes me clean. I can't do it on my own. I'm contaminated exactly what paul is laying out let me pray for us really quickly father thank you for this morning in these words thank you that you give us the word that that's a unique thing that for ages people weren't writing down they were just passing it down and you chose to give us a written word so that we could know you and be without excuse because you love us it's your love letter to us it's your truth of who you are to us the bible and so, Lord, help us to take that to heart. Help us to believe your word over our own. And I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to what it means to be a spiritual person, we pray. Amen. First Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3.1 says this. Paul has laid out his case about foolishness, understanding, wisdom, and the cross. And he says, brothers, he's talking to believers. He says, brothers, what I'm getting ready to tell you is for those who are believers. Tune into that. I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people. I want you to be spiritual people. I wish you were spirit filled and spirit led people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you're still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? So Paul is writing to some people, and he is saying, There are some of you who are believers. You, you know Christ, but you're not living like it. You're still babies. You're not growing in your faith. You just, well, I believe Jesus, and that's all you have. You're not willing to go any deeper, and Paul begins to call into question, are you really saved? Are you really spiritual? He's not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. He's trying to get you to fall in love with a father who has said, I love you, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to change you, and I want to engage with you. You've separated yourself, not God. And Paul's like, you've got to understand the God we have. You've got to quit chasing after fleshly things and chase after spiritual things in the midst of a world that's always trying to get you to please your flesh, always trying to get you to please yourself. I saw a question this week that I want to pose to you, and I'm going to give you this question, and I want you to sit quiet for a second. Here's the question. What if we allowed Christ To reorder our lives the way we allowed COVID to reorder our lives? What if we allowed Christ to reorder our lives the way we have allowed COVID to reorder our lives? We are scared to death of losing our flesh. And barely concerned about people and ourselves perishing spiritually. We have reordered an entire economy, an entire world. Over and over again in Scripture, Paul and Jesus and the apostles and the Old Testament tell us to put off things and put on things. You're all wearing a mask. You put it on, no problem. Why? Because I've got to protect my flesh, gotta protect other people's flesh. But if we don't understand that there is a more contagious thing than COVID called sin. That we have got to deal with in our own hearts and in our own lives and in the lives of other people. And we have to confront it. Can you imagine if we were as confrontational as a church with the true gospel? As people are confrontational about masks and social distancing and all the other stuff. Can you imagine if we were as confrontational about the need to gather together as people are with the need to separate from one another? Which God says, you need to gather and be together. And he said that at a time when there were more pandemics, more sicknesses, and more issues you were going to catch and die from than we have. Without medical care, without antibiotics. It was a test of what we truly believe. We are being tested. Does that mean we don't listen to anybody and I'll show you? No, that's called pride. We'll see that in a minute. But we've got to look at this and say, how is it that we so easily said, I'll reorder my whole life. I'll reorder working at home, doing whatever you want so I can protect myself and protect others. But when it comes to spiritual stuff, well, I got to be happy. God just got to do what's good for me. Whatever you believe is fine. Whatever I believe is fine. There's no real truth. Guys, we... COVID has awoken some good things for us as a church if we'll just pause. It's a good thing when God brings these kinds of things because he shows us how desperate we need the cross. He shows us how foolish we are that we don't understand the things we think we understand and how desperate we need wisdom, people that will live wise lives. So Paul writes this. You see, the goal of our world, Paul gets ready to say this, the goal of our world is to get you to be envious and fight on one human side or another human side. As believers, there are only two sides. We are on Christ's, or we're on the wrong side. Realizing that there is nothing that we need, then we can't, if we realize there's nothing we need, then we can't be deceived to be envious and fight. It's just not worth it. I have everything in Christ. Why do I need to get something now for myself? But we don't believe it. I don't believe it half the time. I argue with God. I get upset with God. Why do they have a, a, this kind of relationship? Or why do they have kids like that? Or why do I have kids like that? Or what? We all look, watched briefly a movie last night and this guy's child died. And then his best friend that he met in the hospital while his child dying died. And I'm like, my kids have barely been sick in their life. I don't deserve that. Is God real? You see, you can know if you're a fleshly or a spiritual person. The word that Paul uses there is carnal. It's, it's sarkonos or sarkikos, which is a Greek word that basically means fleshly, worldly, physical desire. So he's saying you are people of physical desires, emotional, mental, spiritual desires, and that's what babies are <laughs> How many times Has a baby asked a parent In human history How can I serve you today How many times I don't know of one Not a single one That a baby's is looking like I'll do whatever you want They're like this is what I need now I'm happy so I'm going to show you I'm happy Now I'm mad now I'm going to keep being mad till you make me happy you're going to have to figure out what's happy, because I can't even tell you, because I don't know what's going on in my body. I just know I, something down there is not good, and it feels bad, and mushy, and you get going to, ah, and I mean, it, and we will accept that in the fleshly realm, but in the spiritual realm, it's like, oh, that's totally different. That's like otherworldly. No, God uses the physical to expose the spiritual. Let me give you three circles. These, I stole these completely. Bill Bright was the one that came up with this years ago. I think it's one of the best things you can do. To talk about the difference between a spiritual person, a worldly person, and a carnal person. Someone that's fleshly, but still a believer because he's writing to brothers. Here's the first one. This is the worldly person. This is someone That they are on the throne of their life, and Christ is outside the circle of their life. The dots inside the circle represent all the interests, relationships, education, sickness, whatever you put, all those circles are just all the things of life. And this person says, I am on the throne, and I'm going to order it the way I want it, and it's chaos. And every time they get it ordered, somebody messes it up. You ever find that in your house? Heck, half the time, I'm the one messing it up. I get it all ordered, and I go, I don't care anymore, and I just throw stuff everywhere. And then before Susan gets home, I run around and clean it up, just being honest. Because I know she's like, why did you just throw stuff everywhere? Like, I love you, so I I, I wasn't right to keep it. Yeah, I need to clean up. This person says, I don't want God. I'm my own God. I'm my own boss. I'm going to do what pleasures me. The next person is the spiritual person. And this person has said, I want Christ to be on the throne of my life, and I want to bow before him and give him the credit and allow him to order my life so that it makes a difference spiritually in the world. And I recognize that that's the best way to live life, whatever order God puts it in. And I can trust him, because he's God and he's been around a lot longer than I have. And every time humanity says, I don't like God's order, we just mess things up more. And so this is the person that said, I want Christ on the throne. You are my God. I submit to you. How do you want me to do my time, God? How do you want me to do my finances, God? How do you want me to do my relationships and my testimonies, God? How do you want me to invest my life? That's what this person is constantly asking and going to because they know that God loves them and they want his answer because they believe that it's the best answer. But Paul is writing to this third group of people. This is the carnal person. This is a person who has invited Christ into his life, but is controlling or trying to control the circumstances like a baby will control your life. <laughs> they refuse to grow in maturity. They, they're at the bottom and you stay there, I got my life. Now, Paul is clear and the scriptures are clear that if you are okay with living this way, if that's the deal you think you've made with God, you're probably not a believer. We struggle with this. Do you not struggle with that? Do you not struggle with sometimes jumping on the throne and saying, Oh, I got this, Jesus? Okay. I love you enough as a parent to let you try and fail miserably, and I've got band aids and all kinds of stuff to fix it when it's all over. <laughs> right? God allows us to be foolish so He can show us how wise He is, and that's who Paul is writing to. So let me ask you this morning which of those circles do you most? relate to. Which one? You've never invited Christ into your life? You're a spiritual person. Yeah, you struggle, but it's like, I keep wanting to put Christ on the throne. I give him control of my time and my money and my finances. I'm trying to order myself. I'm inviting other people to help me in that process. I see him winning in my life. He's ordering things, even though it's hard, because Jesus said it'd be hard. There's an order to it that brings peace. Or are you the last person? Because my argument is, out of these three people, The last person is the most miserable on the face of the planet. And if they don't know it, they're going to find out someday when they stand before Christ. And all the rewards of heaven are given out. And Jesus is like, well, you got in by the skin on your teeth, man. (laughs) You barely got in. And you're going to be like, I wasted all that time. See, we love to elevate ourselves. We love to elevate the things of this world instead of Christ. Paul goes on to say this. For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, I put Paul on the throne. Or I'm with Apollos, I put Apollos on the throne. He's my guy. Right? Are you not unspiritual people? Who, who, do, you, who do you elevate? Who do you put on the throne? Who do you say this is what the answer is? This is who's going to solve it. Because if it ain't Jesus, man, be careful. Be careful. It is so easy to get trapped. If you're looking for a relationship and Christ isn't on the throne, I promise you, you're going to get with someone who's going to be the throne of your life and it is going to wreck you. If Christ is the throne, if he's on the throne, he will order your life. He will bring the relationships into your life when you need them, as long as you respond in faith. One of the ways we lay this out in our church, well, let me read the rest of this. He says, and what is Paul? Paul's writing. He says, what am I? What is Paul? What is a Paul? Why do you celebrate me? I'm just a human. And then he goes on and he says, they, including himself, are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, Apollos was a good teacher, but God is the one that gave the growth. You see, we love that when Apollos says something we don't like, you know what we love to do? Well, Paul said, Apollos, I, I kind of think I'm more with Paul on this one. Probably misunderstood what Paul said and took it out of context, right? And Apollos is like, that's not what Paul said. Paul and I are saying the same thing. No, no, no. You said this, and Paul said, well, let me bring Paul in. No, I, no, I'm just going to believe what I believe, you believe what I believe, and I'm out of here. Well, no, Paul and I can get on the same page. Let me bring him in, and then we'll talk to you. Nope, I'm out. gone." <laughs> He goes on and he says, so then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We are nothing. A tiny micron virus can kill you. That's how powerful you are. Something you can't see that floats around in the air can kill you. And no matter what you try to do to avoid it, the virus keeps figuring out ways to kill you and to make you sick because it's smarter than you. Because the virus actually submits to sin and submits to God more than you do. Because it does what it was created to do, which is to humble us and show us that we need a savior. That's why we have viruses in the world. To break us, to show us that we need God. The way we talk about this in our church we talk about it this way, go, know, show, and grow. See, lots of people claim to know God, but they don't go to him and to his people in faith. Well, I know Jesus, I've got G- I know Jesus, leave me alone. It's like, well, none of your life is ordered like Jesus told you to order your life or like the Bible told you to order. You're so out of order, I think we need to go to God on your behalf. We need to go to God together. Maybe you need to go back to God and figure out What's going on? So we don't put no as the first thing. The first thing is an active faith where you go to God. The next thing is, and you go to other people for help. The next is knowing God and knowing other people. Are you willing to know truly who God is and what he says? And are you willing to allow others to help speak into your life to do that? And are you willing to be that for other people? And to give them that foolishness, understanding, and wisdom. After that, once you understand, once you've gone to God, you begin to understand who he is, then our response in gratitude is to show God that we love him and show others that we love him and encourage them to love him and show them with their lives, thank you. We just say thank you that I was able to go to you, that you allow me to have a relationship with you, and so I just wanna show you that I'm grateful. Here's my life back. Oh, by the way, it's not my life anyway because I surrendered it to you. And so we're just simply obedient. If you do the first three, Paul says in this passage, the natural byproduct is growth. The natural byproduct of a healthy tree is watering it, sunshine, nutrients, and it just grows and produces fruit. It doesn't have to work hard, it just does it. It's a natural byproduct. If you're not seeing the natural byproduct of a surrendered life in your heart, something's broken. And God is not looking at you saying, you miserable sinner. He's looking at you saying, go to me, come to me, come to my body. Let's help you understand what's broken so that you can begin to show the world that you've been changed and who God is and who I am so that you can stop being a baby and grow into a mature person, a spiritual person. We've been laying this out since the foundation of our church. But in our culture, the culture wants us to get involved in the envy and strife game on every issue. Envy and strife, envy and strife, envy and strife. You don't think so? I know some of you in this restaurant, in this, sorry, in this building are, work at a restaurant, okay? Or have worked in the restaurant. Have you ever had someone, one of your fellow waitresses or waiters, that got like a $50 or $100 tip? And there's like three or four things they didn't even do for their job that day that you're so frustrated with them with. And you've gotten like three tables that gave you nickels because it was just a bad day. You know what I mean? And I'm sure you celebrated like, God, thanks for blessing them, giving them 50 or $100. I have no envy, no strife, just so grateful that I can look at them and say, you want to know why you got 50 or $100? Because there's a God who loves you. I just wanted you to know that. No, we're walking around. I should get fifty, hundred. dollars i will work my tail off. They didn't, even, they didn't bust what they were supposed to bust. I bust their table five times a day. I picked up one of my dishes. We go into the envy and strife game every time, and then all the other sin comes with it. Every time. I do it in my own heart. Every time. That's why he goes on and he says this, or Matthew says it this way. Jesus was speaking. He's, Jesus said, do not collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. What you see, the envy and strife, right? The, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, if you're looking for God, if you're looking to serve people, if you're looking to give your life, he says... You'll be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body's going to follow, and it'll be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, here's the question. How deep is that darkness? Do you even have the light? Are you willing to let Jesus go into the dark places? And he says, no one can be a slave of two masters. You can't have what you want and what God wants since either he will hate the one and love the other Or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves to God and of mammon, the word is used there. Not money, the word is mammon. And mammon in this period would have been used to describe all kinds of excessive lusts like gluttony, greed, dishonest world gain. The word mammon was a bigger word than just money. We translate the word money because money is how you get all the stuff, right? Then he goes on and he says, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. Spiritual people learn how to not worry about their life. And they worry how, learn how to not be so worried about everybody else's life. They learn how to be preachers of life, to give life, a spiritual heaven an eternal life. He says, what will you eat? Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or if toilet paper is going to come in the semi at Sam's and I'm going to have some. What you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? See, babies only want food and clothing. They get cold and they scream. They get too hot, they want you to let me free. And then you feed them and then they make a mess of their clothing. I want new clothing. Mature people are looking to feed others and clothe others. That's the heart of a mature person. A spiritual person is not just looking to clothe them physically. Here's a handout of food. Here's some clothes for you. A spiritual person is saying, it doesn't matter if I feed that person every day or clothe them every day. If they don't know Jesus, they're going to perish forever in the lake of fire. And my heart breaks for them. And I want them to know him. And it's through the things that I give that I want to communicate the gospel, the truth about the cross, and surrender to Jesus. See, we keep collecting and keeping the stuff of this world. And you know what happens when you collect and keep a bunch of stuff? you got to protect it all. You ever notice that? First time I ever learned this seriously was when I was a missionary on the Cherokee Indian Reservation. I went up there to shadow a pastor for a couple of weeks. And I got there. And I made sure my car was cleaned out, but I kept locking the doors on my car. And this pastor looked at me. He lived in a double-wide trailer on the back of the church property, serving the Cherokee people. He was taking me around. We were going into uh, youth hostels and all kinds of things, and it it was crazy what we did and where we went. The access I had to make Christ known was amazing. And he looked at me. This is the third day I was there. He said, Matt, he goes, look, you're going to have to stop locking your car. No. No. I'm not going to stop locking my car. That's insane. That's my car. Like, I no. He's like, the Indians don't trust you, and they think that you keep locking the car because you're a white man who doesn't trust the Indian. They don't lock their cars around here. But I lock my car. Your choice. He said, they'll probably get in and look around it. I'm just letting you know. They'll kind of inspect your life and try to figure out if you're trustworthy. So you'll probably, they might find somebody in there doing something. Like, they, probably, they won't hurt it. It's in the church parking lot. Leave it unlocked. I wrestled with that. And it's a car. So I just started leaving it unlocked. I don't know who got in. I don't know what anybody learned about me. I don't know if my identity was stolen. I have no idea. But if I was going to serve those people, I was going to have to do something that seemed unwise from a worldly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, God's like, that ain't your car. It's mine. If I wanted stolen, woo! it'll drive away don't worry about it okay Lord I wasn't doing it because I'm like well I'm gonna leave my car unlocked if anybody steals it I'll shoot them I'll show them that's not my heart like that was not why I had like this is a different scenario of stewardship of relationships see my fear is in the western church today we have given we have been given over to such a spirit of mammon that we keep brushing over it using Old Testament promised land theology as a justification to keep and have everything we want. And there's a God that's saying, who will surrender and who will give wisely? I get it. But who will be willing to surrender their life and let me be on the throne? Because can I I just tell you, the church is exploding in places right now around the world where people are surrendered to Christ instead of being surrendered to other things. And they have nothing The church in Ukraine right now is hunkering down, getting ready to possibly be slaughtered, if not persecuted, if the Russians come in. They know. It's already been hard in Ukraine. They know it could get much worse. And many of the missionaries are having to make choices right now to either stay with their families and face a Russian army or get out of there and come back to wherever they're from and abandon their flock. And most of the missionaries are saying, I will die with these people. And I'm afraid that most of us would cut and run. Time for me to go back to my country. Time for me to keep my little baby safe. And God's like, where are those that will surrender to him? 1 Corinthians 3.11 says about the foundation. He says, you know, that foundation that we have is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... Each one's work will become obvious. It's going to become obvious in your life over time. The Bible says that wisdom is proved right by her children and grandchildren. You look wise. You think you know what you're saying. You know, I've always said I'm always leery of reading someone who writes a parenting book that hasn't parented kids into adulthood. They, they claim to have a doctorate and an expert and all that kind of stuff, and I'm like, you haven't even got through the teen years yet, man. I'm not saying you're wrong, I just want to give you some time (laughs) to to see if how this pans out. And so if anyone builds on Jesus as the foundation, even with whatever they build with, God can use it. Because sometimes you don't have gold to build with, you got to build with straw, because you don't have the gold to build something else. And sometimes you build with straw because you don't want to give away your gold when God's asking you to build with gold. He says, it'll become obvious over time. Galatians 5, 16, Paul says it this way when he's writing to the church. God has Paul write this. I say then, walk by the Spirit as a spiritual person, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit. The Spirit desires what is against the flesh. That's that carnal war we have of the throne going back and forth. And he says... So that you, and he says, these are opposed to each other. Well, why? So that you don't do what you want. God's like, I have purposely put this war in your heart to try to get you to stop doing what you want so that you begin to do what I want so that the world is transformed and prepared for when I come back and you're ready when you get to heaven. Like that that's what he lays out. And then he says, but if... You are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In other words, this isn't about doing all these right things so I can prove I'm spiritual. Doing all these right things so I measure up. He's like, no, if you do the go-no-show, the growth is going to be the natural byproduct. And then he gives a measuring stick. He says, now, the works of the flesh are obvious. So Paul writes and says it'll eventually become obvious. Paul says, this is what you will begin to see happen in the lives of people that are living by the flesh. They'll be sexually immoral they will change their sexual ethic and the biblical sexual ethic to something other than what God has said. That sounds very familiar to where we are right now. We're having arguments over whether men can participate in women's sports and break records and take that away from them. My heart breaks for people that are struggling sexually. It's been a struggle in my past. My heart hurts for them. It is brutal. It shreds you. It hurts relationships. It's awful. And it is a battle that you need other people to fight with you. I promise. So I'm not saying this out of judgment. I'm saying it out of compassion. That if they deny they're basically who they are, oh my goodness. They're inviting all kinds of other lies into their lives that will destroy them. We have to warn, we have to be loving and kind, we have to tell them the truth, and it is not going to be liked in our world. That's the first one. He says, moral impurity, there shouldn't be in a comma there, moral impurity is another one. That you begin to take the morals that God has laid out, and you begin to twist them just ever so slightly. Did God really say, that was the original lie Satan gave to Adam and Eve, did God really say And we begin to do that with the Bible. We read it and we go, oh, God didn't really mean that. You know, that was a cultural issue back then. It's it's different now. You better ask why they did that in culture back then. I was having a debate with a pastor friend of mine, a friendly debate on Facebook, like laughing funny. Okay, not like we're mad at each other. Like I don't try not to participate in that. But he was talking about how expensive bacon has gotten. Mark Johnson, who's in our church, is devastated because of that, too, just so you know. Mark Johnson wraps bacon, takes pizzas and wraps bacon around them and bakes them for Super Bowl parties. It's amazing, but oh my gosh. Ugh. Anyway, so, so bacon has gotten so expensive. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, isn't it great that, that, that God is protecting us from eating pork that's an unclean animal from the Old Testament that's been made clean in the New Testament? Like, I'm joking with him, right? And he, he, he texts back, he said, Shock me! I love my bacon. I said, well, I like sausage. I mean, I, you know, I'm not against. But, but, but God had good ideas about pork and how it was an unclean animal and what it could do. So then he writes back, and he's like, I don't have the same opinion you do. And then I wrote to him, and joking around, and I said, well, you know, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. And if you eat bacon, you're going to have carotid arteries in those hearts. And it's all over for you. Like, Listen, God writes good laws. They may not seem like they make sense. We may want to dismiss the things we read in the Bible and think, well, that doesn't fit the natural narrative of, like, how we should do things and people in our world. But God is wise enough and smart enough to warn us and to tell us and to ask us, do you trust me or are you going to trust the things around you? Are you going to wrestle with this truth, or are you just going to dismiss it and say, well, I can't participate in that because I had something happen in my past, or I saw this, or I saw that. I can't believe that. Paul goes on, he says, promiscuity, that's using people for whatever you need to use them for. Idolatry, having idols in your life, something more important than Christ, something that drives you more than Jesus and his church does. Sorcery, that's where you, there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians who practice sorcery. Sorcery is the idea that I get to manipulate God and use little trinkets and certain prayers and stuff that I can make God do what I want him to do. That's the essence of sorcery. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Paul lays this out and he says, do you do those things? Do you like doing those things? Do you make excuses for those things? Or... I tell you the truth, he says, about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice he says practice. Practicing means you accept it, you discipline yourself to practice it so that you can get what you want. There's a difference between struggling with sin and saying, I'm going to keep practicing this because I love it and it keeps giving me what I want and so I'm going to keep doing it. There's a difference between the two. Then he goes on and he says, But the fruit of the Spirit, the natural byproduct of go, know, and show, the natural byproduct of growth is love, true biblical love, not the redefinition of love we have, joy, true biblical joy, because it said that Jesus considered it pure joy to go to the cross on our behalf. He considered it the absolute joy to say, I obey you, Father. I want these people to be in heaven. I will give my life so they can see you. And he considered the joy of the cross. Peace, not an earthly peace that comes and goes with our circumstances, but a deep abiding, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness. And then the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control, because that's the fruit of the Spirit that says, are you self-controlled in how you do the things that I just listed? Do you use love for your advantage, or do you love like God loves? He goes on, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. They're at the bottom of the throne laying as dead men. With its passions and desires, since we live by the Spirit, Paul gives them confidence. He says, since you're trying, since we want to live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become, and look what he says again, conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. Paul, in all of his letters, says these same things over and over that the source of all this mess of us not becoming spiritual people is because we look around at the world, at non-spiritual people, and we get envious and upset and whatever else, and then we start provoking people to believe us. Can you believe what they did? Can you believe what they did? Can you believe what they did? And we just cause all this mess. Is it wrong to call people out? No, you should call people and say, you shouldn't do that. that. That was wrong that they did that. It's okay to recognize and warn people and do that, but that's different than aunt, try, you're constantly causing division because there's, there's something you're chasing you feel like you don't have because God's not enough and Jesus isn't enough for you. That is the lie of the enemy. It's the original lie of the Garden of Eden. God's not enough. He's holding out on you. Just take this little piece of fruit. It goes on and says this. At the end, he said, if anyone builds on a foundation with that gold and silver wood strain hall, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it. He's talking about the day when Jesus calls you home or the day when he comes back because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost. Look at this. But he will be saved. Yet it will be like an escape through fire. See, Paul is recognizing that we as Christians struggle with sin. He wants to tell these people, look, look, I want you to be spiritual, but be careful because in thinking that you're becoming spiritual, what I don't want you to do is to think that God doesn't love you, he doesn't want to save you, he doesn't want to change you. I don't want you to go there because the second you go there, you're going to distance yourself from God. You're not going to go to him. You're going to distance yourself and you're going to say, you know, there's things I need to know that God won't tell me, so I'm going to go chase them." And the second you do that, man, you are in, a, you, you're in that carnal position where the weight of all of life and the weight of the glory of God is on top of you, and God is saying, I know you, I love you, don't do this, I have to judge. And he says, I want you to get to heaven and see all that I did through you. I want you to get to heaven and see all the people before you that led you to, to where you are now. I want a celebration of my glory and how I change people. Let's participate in that now. He goes on and says this, or Jesus said it this way in Matthew 21, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What's God's will for your life? The cross. (laughs) Surrender to Jesus. That's God's will for your life. And once you surrender to Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. And he takes you on a process of continually surrendering the rest of your life to Jesus. It's not i got to go through the Bible and do all these works. It's I've got to lean into God, get to know him, and respond to him. And when I fail, i got to lean into God, go to him, ask forgiveness, and help allow him to, to respond properly the next time. That is... So it's not I get God's will and I got to do all these things. It's recognizing that I have a father in heaven who says you can come home. I'm going to bring you home someday. This is a home for you. I'm here. Now I'm asking you to go out and do what I've asked you to do in the world. He says on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? That means speak the word, preach the Bible, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You never surrendered to Jesus. You broke the ultimate law of love God and love people, and you never surrendered your life to me. But if you've made that decision, the Bible says, he'll still take you into heaven as a baby. But he doesn't want you to stay a baby. See, God loves babies. The question is, are you his baby? Have you surrendered He goes on and he says, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, that means receives Jesus, that's what he's trying to get them to see, receives me, will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And he says when the the mess comes, you're gonna find out if you build on sand or on the rock. You know the great part is? If you build on the sand and you get washed out to sea, There's a story in the Bible about a guy who was building on sand, got washed out to sea, got swallowed by a well, and got spit up back on the sand, and then he went in and did what he was supposed to do. Welcome to Christianity. God is that merciful. He is that kind, and that loving, and that patient, and that long-suffering. He goes on and says this in 1 Corinthians, don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary, and that the Spirit of God lives in you. We don't... A sanctuary is not something you build and put a steeple on. That's called a building with a steeple. A sanctuary, according to the New Testament, is the human heart. God said, I tore down the temple. I'm building a temple in heaven. You will never have a temple again on this earth where I'm present in it because now I've moved the temple into the human heart. That now I reside in you in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in this little room called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so many people are come to church and they're so worried about, like, i got to put on the right show and the clothes and everything else. And then they go out and their heart's just so wicked. It's like, no, I'd rather you come dirty and smelly. I, I mean, I don't want you to, but like you woke up late and you just come to church. And then during the week you're cleaning yourself up. Praise the Lord. He goes on and he says, if anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy. Look what he says. And that's what you are. You know, the only way to be holy is to be God's child, because only God's holy. He says, The only way for you to be holy is for you to recognize you are God's child, that you've surrendered to Him, that you're not going to chase earthly fathers, you're not going to chase earthly things, you're going to say, You are my Father, I surrender. I place you on the throne, I submit. And and I know I'm going to wrestle with this. I know you're going to go in the sanctuary. You're going to start cleaning out all the places I've shoved stuff. You ever been in the back of a church, like an old church? And you go to a lot of churches that have the back room behind, you know, not the churches that have stages today, but the ones that have the two rooms, like the choir room behind. You ever been back into those rooms? Oh, my gosh, the amount of mess that's back there. And to try to throw anything else away, you're going to, like, offend half the church. I bought that in 1984 for the church. Yeah, and it's been sitting there since 89. Like goes on and he says, if you destroy God's sanctuary, God will destroy you. Do you realize that God is merciful enough to take you out and just bring you home to be with him? He loves you so much and he's so concerned about his kids hurting other kids that God will sometimes just intervene in people's lives and take them out. I had a pastor tell me one time, he goes, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Once you're God's child, you're God's child. But I think sometimes He'll just take you home to be with him. (laughs) You're done. Here you go. (laughs) And how awful that we would have hearts like that instead of hearts that are responsive that want to come home to him. Paul is saying, understand who you are. He goes on to say, no one should deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he can become wise. Paul comes back around to what he was saying two chapter, or in the previous chapter and in the end of chapter 1. He says, you must be foolish. You've got to come back to the foolishness of a surrendered life in Christ so that you can actually understand what's truly wise. For wis- the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. How many more politicians... Doctors, people need to get caught, pharmaceutical companies, churches, I I mean, how many more need to get caught in their craftiness before we wake up and go, I'm not sure they're very wise. I mean, they, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. So, you know, they all get it right every once in a while. But it's God who has wisdom. And then he says, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. When they begin to give their reasons, have you ever done this? Have you ever started to give your reasons when you realize you've done something you shouldn't do? You, you start to go down the reason path? Well, uh, and I had to, and well, there's this thing, and the meteor went across, and I had to go, and you know, this is, and we go, 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 go. And God's like, you don't have to do that with me. You can look at me and go, yeah, I got no reason other than I wanted it, and I did it, and I'm sorry, and I need help. That's it. Over. God says He'll forgive you, He'll restore you, He'll He'll begin to change you. The wisest man ever in Scripture, besides Jesus Himself, the wisest human being, was King Solomon. And he acted like an idiot. He had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. That is not wisdom on display. Just telling you. Not wise. Cost him the kingdom. It cost his I mean it's a mess. Ecclesiastes 12.8, at the end of Solomon's life, he writes this. After he's written a great love book, and after he's written a bunch of wisdom stuff, he comes to the end of his life, and he's like, yeah, my love book and my wisdom stuff, it was true, but all it, here we go. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. He repeats this in the book of Ecclesiastes multiple times. He says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, the reasoning of the matter is, fear God, keep his commands, and this is for all human beings. It's just simple. Fear God more than you fear anything else. And prove it by loving him, calling out to him, and knowing him. You see, Jesus asked us, you ready for this, to make the same trade he did in this life when he was in his flesh. He sacrificed his flesh so that others could find life, you and me. He asked us to make the same trade that he did. You see, we just don't believe it or want it. Paul goes on to say, No one should boast in human leaders. Remember, he was talking about him and Apollos earlier. For everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. He's looking and saying, What are you chasing? You're going to have everything your heart could desire, just not yet. Can you be patient? Can you just wait? When you get to heaven, everything's going to be yours. Why do you keep chasing stuff here? You're going to get it all one day. You don't need to chase it. Just trust the one who owns it all. And we get so easily deceived. We think we're missing out on something. And God's like, you're not missing out on anything if you know me. He finishes up and says this in 1 Corinthians 4.1, a person should consider us in this way. Paul's talking about all the fellow, faithful fellow workers. Later, he calls people that aren't a part of them, false prophets. He says, consider us in this way as servants of Christ. So who do they serve? Who does Apollos and Cephas and Paul serve? They serve Christ. How did they prove it? They proved it by surrendering their lives. By giving their lives to the church, giving their lives to others. He says, and managers of God's mysteries. In other words, like we're just trying to manage this mess. We're just trying to figure this out and let people know who Christ is and who God is and the Holy Spirit. He says, in this regard, it is expected of managers that each one of them be found faithful. Faithful. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have. Over the last couple of years, I'm amazed at how faithfulness means nothing today. It's just whatever works for you, whatever deal you can work out with your boss. It's not about being faithful and showing up to work and doing your job, it's about how you can manipulate the situation to your benefit. And then people get on Facebook and they talk about how they manipulated the situation, and you need to go to your boss, and you need to tell him, and you need to tell them, and you need to do. Where are the servants? That doesn't mean you take abuse. I'm not talking about that. God calls out abuse. But just show up and do what you're supposed to do and honor the Lord and make Him known. He's on the throne. So I ask you as we wrap up three images. The first image Do you know Christ? Have you kept Christ outside of your life? And you know him, you know about him. If you're tuning in online or you're here, you've probably heard about Jesus. You just didn't randomly search the web and popped on us, right? Do you really know him? Do you want to know him? Because I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's amazing, but it'll cost you everything. But you'll get everything in return someday. If you've not surrendered your life and made him The man, the the boss of your life, man, do that today. Don't perish. Surrender to him. How, How about this one? Are you the spiritual person? Are you at a place where you're just walking with God so sweetly? You're seeing him order things. Yes, it's a struggle. Yes, it's hard. But man, you just need to pause this morning and tell God thank you. You haven't given up on me. You, you've allowed me to keep putting you back on the throne. You've been patient with me. You've loved me. I'm not going to doubt that I'm your child. I'm not going to try to go practice Baptist penance to earn back some right I have with you. The Catholics just have penance in their, in their uh, religion. Baptists say we don't, but then we practice it. If I just do enough goods, and then, then I can come back to church and I, I can feel good. No, just come, go before God. Re-engage are you someone that's willing to say, help me, I want Christ on the throne, and I'm willing to have, have you help hold me accountable to that? Or are you this last person that Paul's writing about, a spiritual person in the middle? Are you the last person? You're just a baby. You're just carnal. You know Jesus. You know you trusted him. You remember when you asked him. You know that, 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 that he loves you. You know that he's real. You don't You don't necessarily seriously doubt that, but... It's obvious that you keep pushing him away when he's asking you to surrender. Can I just tell you, that's the most miserable, and I don't want you to be miserable. I want you to to begin to to live and grow and know, grow and grow and show and grow as a spiritual person, to become a spirit-filled person in the world. And I'm telling you, the world isn't going to like it. They're going to push back against it every single time. Because the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is light and it's blinding light and they want nothing to do with it. But we're still called to be a light. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know where you are, but you do, tuning in online or here. And I'm asking you to make a decision this morning to either trust him, to either just thank him and continue to fight or to say, God, I need help. And if you're that third person, I promise you, absolutely promise you, you can't do it on your own. You want to know why? I know that. Because we have the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, 2. Paul kept having to write and encourage the churches to encourage one another because you're not designed to do it alone. We're being built into something, and we need one another. Invite someone to pray for you. Invite someone to fight with you. Invite someone to hold you accountable. If you need to talk to us as staff, we'd love to do that. Not in judgment, but to draw you back so that you're confident in who God is and you can be confident in the fact that God is making you into his spiritual person. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for how you're changing us even when we don't realize it. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your discipline. Father, my heart for people tuned in online, my heart for the people here is that they would be spiritual people. And spiritual people are not people that do a bunch of works and spiritual things. They're people who understand what it means to surrender to you and keep coming back for that surrender. That's what a spiritual person, it allows them to be transformed, that they fight the flesh instead of just allowing the flesh to take over. And I thank you that you're patient with us. You are patient with all kinds of people in the Bible who struggle with all kinds of things lying, greed, sexual sin, speaking wrongly. You are patient with all kinds of people, but you didn't hold back the truth because you love us. And so, Father, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray today be the day they say, I'm done. I've had myself on the throne, and my life is a mess. I'm just ready to surrender. If there's a God, God, if you love me, I know you love me, you say you love me, and Jesus, you're real, I I just surrender to you. I ask you to come in and change me. Help me become your sanctuary to declare your glory. And for those of us who are spiritual and are walking spiritually, I pray that we would continue in that process, continue to come to you and allow you to order our lives in the small ways that you ask us to. And for those that are living carnally, Lord, my heart breaks for them the most. It is is such a miserable battle. And that's why Paul is writing to this church. He loves them so much. He wants to, to try to draw them back to be spiritual people. That's my prayer this morning for us, and we thank you.